0: I've been looking forward to having this chance. You know, on Money Talks, I'm proud of the fact that we've been talking about the impracticality of the renewable energy agenda. Well, I'll tell you someone who is, and we we were early in this, I'll tell you someone who was a lot earlier, Robert Bryce, written for a ton of publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Forbes. But you know what? Many is better known now for the Power Hungry podcast, a terrific podcast. But it comes, it's terrific because of the information he brings to the public. And that's why, uh, you know, I take time to listen and read what Robert said. He, he wrote the book Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuel of the Future. And I'm not sure if anybody was sooner in that or, you know, before that. No, he was on his own on that one, talking about the hard reality that we're going to need oil. We're going to need coal. We're going to need natural gas you know, if we're even going to do renewables. Uh, that's why I'm so pleased to, that he's found time for us here. Robert, thanks for finding that time.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Happy to be with you.
0: As I say, you've been immersed in this, uh, this broad subject, the broad energy subject for such a number of years. I know this is the Barbara Walters question, you know, but can you give me what you think the biggest myths are that are still prominent out there? I mean, we get inundated in Canada with our uh, government talking about renewable energy. And to me, sure. in a completely impractical manner, you know, we'll be zero, we'll be zero emissions by Tuesday.
1: Right. <laughs> I thought it was Monday afternoon. Mike, yeah. But, uh, yeah okay. Tuesday. Yeah. We'll give them a little extra time. Uh, biggest myths. Well, they are persistent and they are whoppers. Uh, but I'd say the first one is that we're going to make a quick transition. You know, this is something that is obvious when you look at the history of the energy and power sectors. Um, Here we are in in 2023, uh, what is that, 141 years after Edison used coal on the Pearl Street plant in lower Manhattan, and today coal still provides, what, 36 37% of global electricity. And for all the talk about coal being dead, the fact is that coal demand continues to rise. Um, so this is indicative of the, you know, what is called the Lindy effect, a new idea that I've just recently come to. Which, when you have these big systems, whichever, whatever they are, whether it's a big installed base of of, of automobiles or or power plants, they are going to tend to stay in place for a long time, right? The inertia of the system. So, I would say that was the, is the biggest myth: this idea that we can do something in short order and i think that in particularly in the wake of covid with the co- with the labor shortages with supply chain disruptions that's much more obvious now we are not going to switch to something else and of, of course the issue being wind and solar we are not going to make our shift our economy over to those two sources of intermittent energy anytime soon uh, at scale
0: yeah. And what would you think is more realistic timeline? And I know uh, I'm not putting words in your mouth that you think never? that it's going to happen. Never, yeah.
1: never fit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like my friend, my friend, Bob Helder, he loves to tell it. It's his favorite cartoon. It was in the New Yorkers and there are two people standing there and they're looking at their calendars or whatever. And one says to the other, how about never does never work for you? <laughs> um, and I, I bring that up because it's funny. Right. But you know, the Jude Clementi makes a good point. He said, you know, we talk about electricity, we talk about wind and solar. Well, okay, they're fine, and they are growing. There's no doubt about it. I have solar panels on the roof of my house. There's no doubt that the solar market is growing. So is wind but those are producing electricity and we don't use electricity in transportation except to a very very limited degree. So this ignores the fact that the overwhelming majority of so what a 97% of our transportation depends on oil. So we you know this transition that we're talking about is only affecting a very small part of the overall energy consumption uh, you know that we that we that we need the overall energy and power that we need to to uh, run the economy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so mind blowing, of course, how sophisticated, how simplistically we've talked about this transition, and yet how sophisticated it is, you know, from, uh, you know, and I know this is sort of sarcastic, and that's probably not that powerful, but from a lot of people who don't know where their electricity comes from, other than the wall you know, are leading the way. And uh, some people are much more aggressive than I am about calling that out. But, uh, and again, my favorite example is they didn't understand that the wind doesn't blow every day or the sun doesn't shine. I mean, that's the level of sophistication we're talking about here. And I know for, I mean, there's so many places, you know, we can go with this, but let me just stay with materials for a second. I mean, we're not in the ballpark. Uh, if you want lithium ion batteries, well, good luck on a lot of, and again, that's a great example. We could be talking about how long they last. We could be talking about recycling. We could be talking about all of that stuff, but I'll just start with where you're getting your cobalt from, buddy, you know, where you're getting yeah. your lithium from. And one of the things that you've tracked, and you are again, the pioneer in this, is we don't talk about the blowback from local communities, for example. We didn't talk about sure. that at all coming from China for rare earth minerals. But you, you've done more work than anyone I'm aware of in the blowback from local communities. So maybe just focus on that for a sec because they're not going to hear it anywhere else. Sure.
1: Well, and the a lot of the coverage and there's has been now. I will say the Washington Post has done a couple of really good stories in the last month or so on yeah. this, and uh, I'm calling, I'm saying they're good because both they quoted me, um, and they cited <laughs> my work, the the renewable rejection database, yes. which I've been working on now since 2015. But the reality is that in Canada, I mean, look in Ontario, you have over 90 local communities who've declared themselves unwilling hosts to wind turbines. Uh, there's been resistance to wind all across Canada. Look at the more recent one. I think it was in Newfoundland. Uh, where lo- local communities block the road to prevent the construction of a wind project there uh, look at what you know what is happening in Europe massive opposition to these large-scale wind and solar projects so uh, I'll just follow up on the renewable rejection database this is work I'm very proud of and I'm why yeah. did I do it because I'm just damn stubborn right I just decided okay well as W Edwards Deming said in God we trust all others bring data well so I had to start collecting the numbers and the data and and citing each township each county each place where there have been a rege- rejection or restriction, and now we're at close to 400 rejections or restrictions of wind energy. This is just in the U.S. and over 130 rejections or restrictions of solar. And no one on the other side, and by that I mean the you know the the promoters of the weather-dependent renewables, have challenged me on any of it because they don't want to acknowledge Mike. And this is the part that just my late brother John Bryce said grills my cheese. They just assume that all those people who live out there in rural areas are just those bumpkins, you know, those hay seeds. They just don't know what's good for them, and we're going to force them. And that is, in in fact, what is happening in many of these cases. These big companies, including NextEra and Invenergy and and, and even MidAmerican Energy, a subsidiary of, of Berkshire Hathaway, are trying to force local communities to accept big wind and solar projects they don't want imagine if this was ExxonMobil or Ch- or Chevron, yeah. what, would the, what would the media coverage be? I think it would be somewhat more than what it's been, <laughs> what we've been seeing, Mike.
0: Well, what's also a never gets reported. And I think this one I'm I, okay. Yes. You did mention the Washington Post a month ago. Come on. This is an issue. Yes. And I say better late than never, but that is late, you know, to this issue. Sure. And, and, uh, but I would say this, they also don't report that who's opposing, a lot of times it's the local people, but it's environmentalists who also oppose these projects. I think that just, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the name of uh, the eco blank that's proud of the fact they got 180 lawyers involved trying to stop these projects. You know, and right. that's another aspect that, as I say, I, 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 people are listening today, haven't heard that.
1: Well, but let me I'll underscore that by pointing out what's happening on the U.S. East Coast. Where you have these big NGOs, and I don't call them environmental groups anymore. I don't think they're actually pro-environment. I think in many cases, they're just anti-environmentalists. I think what we're seeing is the death of environmentalism, and it's being replaced Mm -hmm. by climatism and renewable energy fetishism. And this is very clear when you see the the, uh, the issues around the, uh, the North Atlantic right whale and the efforts to build massive amounts of wind energy uh, capacity on in the ocean on the East Coast. It is very clear. You look at the maps and the maps of where these projects are planned to be built are right on top of known habitat of the North Atlantic right whale and across the board from the Sierra Club and Natural Resources to- is crickets. They're no yeah. oh, Or they're even saying, oh, it's not wind turbines. The whales are dying from something else. Well, well, wait a minute. Imagine again if this was the oil and gas industry trying to do what the wind industry is doing. It would be an, up, an uproar. There would be people getting arrested in the protests. And instead... Because the wind business is like, oh no, no, never, never, never mind, no, no problem. We're not really concerned about the whales. I mean, it, it's not their fault, you know. It, yeah, it's truly incredible. I mean, it really is, Mike. And and I I, I find it just disgusting on a whole lot of levels. I I, I do not. I, if it isn't clear, I don't like these groups. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: But again, this is uh, symptomatic of the entire approach here, you know, that never was always politicized. It was looked at as an opportunity to gain power, looked at, you know, to raise money. There's a lot of other motives that were involved, as you just pointed out, besides climate change, besides, or lowering emissions, I should put it. Now, I'm not even getting into that debate. I'm just saying, if you're trying to lower emissions, we're not going about it the right way. Just so you know, Robert, just as I'm up in Canada, of course. But, uh, the government has their own environmental commissioner who said we Canada for all the talk, because yeah, I think per capita Canada talks more a good game than anyone else. We might rival the Green Party in Germany. I mean that's where we're at.
1: Ooh, now that's oh, a bold statement. I, I know go ahead.
0: I know I'm stepping out on a limb on that one. But <laughs> we are last in G seven in emissions reductions, but the most in yep. the hot air talking about them. You know, so
1: <laughs> but but I'll, I'll tell you how I see, you know, Mike, I've followed, uh, you know, your fellow Canadian Chris Kiefer and his yes. work on nuclear in Canada. And I think, you know, I, where I see I'm, I'm pretty bullish on Canada in that regard. I, what what I see now I'm in Texas and I'm watching it from a distance. But I've had Chris Kiefer on my podcast yep. and talked to him many times. He's a friend of mine. And I'm really proud of the work that he's done and how he has really reinvigorated the focus on can do reactors in Canada. You've got the best uranium deposits in the world, you have these incredible, incredibly designed, very uh, uh, durable. Um, uh, reactors, here, and and he has helped catalyze the movement to not just refurbish them to expand them. I mean, it's really been quite remarkable. So, you know, I and 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 here's my view on on nuclear and climate. You don't have to be concerned about climate to be pro nuclear. I mean, you know, I, I think the other attributes of nuclear are really critical here, and the weather resilience and the affordability, the long term jobs, the infrastructure. Those are things that. And and labor in particular is one of the reasons why Kiefer's had such a, su- such success is getting labor on his side pointing out these are good long term high paid jobs and so I think there's a uh, Canada I, I really think is in many ways going leading the world in terms of um, uh, blazing a path in terms of a new view on. Uh, sustainable and well, I hate that word. I don't like that. Uh, of, of durable energy and power networks.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. We've had a chance to talk with Chris and I have tremendous respect for the, the dedication oh, they've shown. And yes, they have had, I think that's the most positive thing I can say. You know, I mean, literally yeah. when you look at, when you look at people uh, in, in our government, not acknowledging the challenges with supply chains, the, the challenges with China dominating rare earth as just an example, refining, rare, you know, yeah. all the things around that. thanks to Chris and his group and the people who've worked tirelessly there, they made progress in Ontario, you know, which is obviously significant. And British Columbia is lucky because it's, it's hydroelectric. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, Quebec's been lucky on that regard too. Uh, And you say uh, we've got the uranium deposits and that brings me to another thing on the bigger issue, if you don't mind, because you've been writing about it, which is, Hey, you know, and we've been chronicling this. We were bullish on uranium. Remember Sprout, Sprott, I'm sorry. Yeah, Sprott went the whole uranium fun thing, and I and we were bullish on that. That same conference, by the way, in February of two twenty, saying that's one of our you know long term picks is by uranium. You're, you know the the top quality uranium companies, BHP, you know, yeah, uh, Chemical, Chemical, that kind of stuff, and uh, so. It, We've been measuring that progress and whether it's, uh, you know, Japan saying, wait a second, we don't care about Fukushima anymore. We're going to do more. South Korea saying, I think we can put 22 up tomorrow morning. Uh, You know, all of those things. There's clearly (laughs) been a movement towards uranium, but that doesn't guarantee the supply side. And that's something, again, you've brought to the public's attention.
1: Well, and this is something that I think is, you know... (laughs) I've I've been I've written six books and yeah. and by the way I, I, you didn't plug my Substack I'm gonna plug that oh I will. Rob, Robert Robert Bryce dot com Uh, And I have a piece out uh, just published uh, talking about uranium supplies and the fact that the U.S. has really sleepwalked into this situation where in the 1980s, we were the world's biggest exporter of nuclear fuel. Now we're the biggest importer and we've quit mining uranium for all effective purposes. Now, our uranium ore is not as good as Canada's, not as good as Kazakhstan, but we still have reserves. And we could say the same about oil and gas in the United States. Our our reserves aren't as big as Saudi Arabia's, but still we're, we're producing it. But... The, the point here is that we have fallen asleep, the, and we, I'm using the papal we here, in the United States, where a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of capital is going toward small modular reactors, the ideas of the nuclear renaissance. But uh, in all the midst of this, there's been an ig- ignorance and a blithe kind of, you know, uh, just uh, assumptions that we're going to have enough fuel. And hold on just a damn minute. No, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, those fuel supplies are really problematic. And the, remember that the U.S. is going to be competing now with European countries and China for a fuel out of Kazakhstan for enrichment, you know, that this is a global game now. And we've lost this focus on our energy security when it comes to this critical energy commodity, which is uranium, and enriched uranium, HALU, low-enriched uranium. Mm -hmm. We've lost focus on that, and we better get sober right damn quick.
0: Yeah, but typical of every aspect of this, uh, you know, sort of the energy debate. You know, I mean, you mentioned coal a a bit ago, and it's related to nuclear. I mean, is there a bigger farce than Germany having spent something upwards of $500 billion to do renewables and of course, they shut down their you know the last year, uh, nuclear plant in April. The last couple go down. Right. And who's the biggest importer of coal now? You know, in Europe, who's the one who's using the most for their grid? I mean, y- you can't make this well, stuff and, up. And
1: remember, remember the great the height of it, Mike, was when it was. Late last year I published a piece I think it was in Forbes. Mm-hmm. I'm only writing on Substack now, but you can find it on Forbes. They took down a wind project in Germany to make way for yes. the expansion yeah. of a lignite mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you wrote that, if you wrote that, no one would believe it, yeah. right? You know, it's like, "Oh, come on. That doesn't happen." No, in fact, it did. It did happen, yeah. and it's indicative of What I call the iron law of electricity, which is people, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And this is what we see in Germany. And since we're on the topic of Germany, I'll just quickly add, I, I do short videos. I call them about a minute and I put them on TikTok and Twitter and the rest of it. And I did one the other day. Germany is in recession now. Yeah, you know there this the staggering increases in energy prices. This is foolishness of trying to you know pin their economy to renewables, closing their nuclear plants, and the 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 heads of two different companies, RWE and Evonik Industries, both were quoted in the Daily Mail just the other day saying we're starting deindustrialization. This is ru- ba- energy policy disaster was the phrase yeah. used by the head of Evonik, which is a, a very big chemical company. So. You know, the, the, Germany is showing the world what not to do, and they're doing it with the typical kind of German pride, I guess. I don't know, but there's no explaining it. I don't get it, Mike.
0: But the inexplicable part, or I guess it is explainable if you're an ideologue, but what lessons have they learned in Europe? I mean, I look at some of the notes coming out of the EU, uh, you know, in the parliament and stuff. You have people who are opposed to it, but the, still the thrust is, uh, by the way, I've learned nothing. You know, it's, I yeah. find it absolutely incredible that the harsh reality of things like the deindustrialization estimates of 20% of the German industrial base manufacturing base has been lost now transferred to other more reliable uh, jurisdictions. Yeah. What would get your attention? What, you know, what great Britain having a 1200% increase in electrical costs, uh, September of two twenty one? you know, electrical bill, like, wouldn't that get your attention? It's unbelievable to me how nothing's been learned.
1: Well, let's talk about Britain then too. So I forgot the name of the woman who was the prime minister for about six weeks before Rishi Sunak took over, right?
0: Yeah, I think her name was Liz Trust. And she was the one who was going to do, uh, like said, we were going to go back to shale and then they turn that over. That would have been a good thing. But yeah, it's it's unreal what's going on.
1: And well, it, it is. And isn't it incredible? And she was a Tory and she's replaced by the Tory Rishi Sunak, who one of the first things he does when he gets back into office is say, oh, yeah, we're going to ban fracking. No, we're not going to repeal the ban on fracking. We're going to keep that in place. I mean, it's just truly incredible, Mike. And, you know, there's an there's a historical element to this that I think it's important to understand. So Remember, the the discovery of the North Sea oil field changed Britain's yeah. form, you know, their their fortunes, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, just turned them into an energy powerhouse. But then they quit drilling and some of the North Sea, you know, reserves were declining. But Britain has amazing quantities of shale. The amount of gas in place in, in the shales in Britain are just enormous. Well, there's a historical precedent, as I mentioned, and during World War II – uh, there's a book that was published called The Secret of Sherwood Forest. There were drillers that went from Oklahoma to the, to Britain and drilled something like 100 wells in a span of about 18 months, if memory serves. Dramatically increased oil production in Britain, did it all in secret. And that oil then was used in the war effort to help provide high octane gasoline for British airplanes. So if there is a crisis and Britain is clearly in a crisis, why in the name of Peter, Paul and Mary, would they not start drilling again? But again, I think this, to me, it's indicative and it'll jump ahead. What is this indicative of? I think it is indicative of this, this, uh, this intransigence of the anti hydrocarbon lobby and their many allies in, in the NGO world and in politics. And they, don't want any kind of hydrocarbons to be developed and they hate nuclear and they're, you know, they have this fantastical notion around renewables and they, they are incredibly powerful in 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 political circles. And, and
0: you think of the consequences of that approach. They had a mild winter, which was a was a godsend, you know, to them. But they're not always going to have mild winters. They've done nothing to really change the dynamic of their energy regime. Uh, we find the denial, and I, and we did mention, you know, Ontario nuclear. That was a positive. California saying hey, the Diablo Canyon can keep going a little bit longer, but. To me, yeah, this yeah. reluctance to acknowledge just the facts that have happened, the consequences that have happened in terms of industrial uh, output industrial you know base you know jobs, individuals really suffering at the lower end of the income scale uh, bodes very ill that we're going to revisit these and worse and and sorry, one aspect that does gets overlooked in the West is that's already had devastating consequences in developing nations. Sure, Germany could afford to go out and buy natural gas, bid up the price and pay for it. Well, that took it out of the hands of Sri Lanka. Uh, You know, I mean, no wonder India is being so belligerent or not cooperative to the West, you know, when it comes to energy policy. The list is a long one. And I think the failure to acknowledge what they've already done in Africa in the negative, you know, with estimates of 675 million people without electricity, I, I can go on and on in this because I find it so outrageous.
1: Well, well, let me give you a, a specific here, Mike, because this one, I think, is indicative of what, you know, power politics when it comes to global mm-hmm. energy. Right. So what did Germany do after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, you, Nord Stream got blown up and, you know, it's we're still, you know, a lot of debate about who did it. I Seymour more Hirsch's article has very strong belief, you know, it's very strong indications it was the U.S. Now, is that provable? No. But um, I digress but what did germany do they went around the world started buying up lng cargoes every one that they could and what did they do they outbid pakistan in particular and so in the last few months the pakistanis have said okay we're out of the lng market we quit we can't buy we can't compete with the rich germans we're going to build coal plants and that is in fact what they are doing and so it, again, it goes back to the iron law of electricity, you know, politicians get booted out of office if the lights go out, you know, this was, I saw it here in Texas, right, you know, the governor after the blackouts here two years ago, oh, don't blame me, you know, it's those guys, well, they're, his, you know, largely his appointees, but never, never mind. But what is Pakistan doing? They're tending to their own needs. What is India doing? What is China doing? They're all building coal-fired power plants because they know they have to have electricity and they're going to do what they need to do for their economy. That is the, you know, climate change takes us back seat always everywhere. And this is Roger Pilkey Jr.'s point, the iron law of climate change, that when faced between economic growth and action on climate, countries will always, always choose economic growth. And that's what we're seeing. And that's that's the
0: irony. I think Monty Python sits back and says they're angry that they've borrowed one of their scripts, you know, because <laughs> because it's really I mean, the number of things I've, I've written or posted and I I start with you can't make this up, you know, as we alluded yeah. to earlier, because I, I'm just at, at, at a loss at the ideological driven climate change agenda without any practicality. And now we're seeing these consequences. And then consequences, by the way, let me ask you a question. Sorry, this is just sure. like if we were having a beer, I'd ask you this question.
1: Yeah. Part, when do the people away. who
0: have pushed that agenda have to take responsibility for it? Like one of the big issues on Money Talks, and this is going back early, was, wait a second, you stop natural gas, you're impacting ammonia and urea and fertilizer prices. I right. mean, one of the best suggestions I had, and I think it was 220, I said, buy ammonia. You know, in the future is because it you know, went up 600 percent, but it was under right. that understanding. Well, you're going to starve people. You know, you have to own your consequences. And there are consequences right. besides my electricity bill went up or even that the uh, you know, industrial base is being eroded. No, we were right. literally starving people and they just take no responsibility. And if you, in my opinion, if you vote for these people again, well, you got to own that consequence.
1: Yeah, and I'll take that point, but I also think things are starting to shift, Mike. I think, when, you know, especially in Europe, I think – now, German, let's leave Germany out of the conversation for a moment. But what we – I just wrote in my piece on Substack, um the headline is No U, uh, the letter U, hmm. No Uranium. Um, pointing out that in Europe now there's a new nuclear alliance and that they there are 16 countries in this alliance who are saying we're going to develop our own nuclear supply chain. Right. We're going to do it without the Russians. Okay, well, that's great. Right. But I think it's indicative of of energy realism. It's indicative of this. There is some sobriety that is approaching here now. Is it the same in Canada and the U.S.? Well, maybe. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about Trudeau. He, you know, he, I, I think he's always holding his finger up and see which way the wind is blowing. But I think there is still in the United States. You know, we're seeing different, uh, big regional differences. I, you don't see this kind of sobriety in California. Let me be clear. I mean, this, this is a state that is alike, that Germany's. This is the Germany of the United States when it comes to energy policy. And I'll just make one more quick point, which is that. I've written a lot about California and my daughter lives in Los Angeles. So I, 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 I have to be, you know, very um, understanding of what, you know, of the state in general, but their, their energy policies are just ruinously regressive and their, their their electricity prices are now about, have risen faster than any other state in the United States since 2008. And it's all because of this renewable craziness and yet they double down on it. So I, you know, I I see some signs for hope, Mike. That's what I'm trying to focus on, and be be, yeah. be optimistic. But I'm also very aware and very sober about well, what are where are we headed, and how what do we need to do in terms of policy that makes sense?
0: Well, I'm in that camp that wants a wake up call you know, and yeah. I say the evidence is in front of you. And I'm saying this from, hey, if climate change is your agenda, and that's fine, I have no debate, we can all have what our priorities are from government. I'm saying the very people who tell you they care about climate change and politics are undermining, as your example about the coal production going on in several other nations, right. uh, you know, because of that climate agenda. Uh, I'm just still flabbergasted. And I just say, Make whatever choice you want, but know the facts. Wake up a little bit to the consequences, uh, you know, within this. But I want to come back before I let you go to the uranium sure. story. And the reason is, uh, again, I'm not trying to, I can't give individual investment advice because I don't know everybody's circumstances. But right. What I think you can make a strong case for is having a core position of uranium that you might say I'm keeping five to seven years mm. because I don't see anything but demand going up, and they can't meet the supply – uh, requirements to meet that new demand. Just, I'm just standing back saying that's what it looks like to me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll add, I, you know, I don't own any uranium stocks myself. I'm, I'm just more of an index fund guy because I've, you know, I'm not smart enough to try and outsmart the market, but I do see, and I've had on my podcast on the power hungry podcast, yeah. Adam Rosen swag talking about the bull case for natural resources in general. Um, and I think there is a strong case for the, you know, base metals, copper nickel, uh you know the 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 metals that are going to be critical to um any any you know this build out of renew of renewables and so on but i think also it's it's important to remember and i've had another guest on my podcast simon michaud talking about mining in general and you know so far this year i think copper has been pretty flat right which is you know odd it should be in theory should be going up but you also, so Simon Misha was his name, talking about the fact that globally, these ore bodies, the quality of the ores that we're mining now in general across base metals are lower quality than the ones we were mining 10 or yes. 20 years ago. Well, that means more energy intensity. It means that they're going to be harder to mine, harder to produce. And in theory, more, you know, somebody's going to make some money on this. So, um, but I'll also add, you know, the oil and gas market. There's been con- continuing underinvestment in oil, and this is an irreplaceable fuel. I, was, uh, you know, I, I like to say, well, if oil didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It is a damn near miracle substance. And the idea that we're going to do without it is just not based on anything close to reality, given the massive base of, of internal combustion engine vehicles that are on the road. Of, what is it, a billion and a half globally? And, and back
0: to our the very first question I ask about myths, and that's got to yeah. be one of the big myths is somehow we're not going to be using, you know, oil, natural gas, coal. We're going to use energy. That's the premise. And if someone says we're not, then, you know, try it yourself. You know what I mean? I
1: say you first. Hi- hydro- I, my punchline, is, Mike, is hydrocarbons are here to stay. Are, yeah. are, are wind and solar growing? Yes. But largely they're only adding to our energy supply. Yes. They're not displacing significant quantities of hydrocarbons on the global scale. Yes, on in the electric sector in the US, you can make that argument and I'll okay, I'll buy that. But last year alone in the US, I have these numbers, I've been presenting on it, just the growth in natural gas last year and gas consumption in the US went up five percent, which is a huge jump in one year. The five percent increase in natural gas was about one and a half exajoules, I think, that just the increase in natural gas was greater than the increase in wind and solar combined. So this idea that hydrocarbons are suddenly going away. No, let's look at the numbers. The numbers do not indicate that there is yes. a energy transition and energy transition underway.
0: So much to talk about. And I want to invite people to go to the power hungry podcast, but you know what, Robert, you also do a Substack. I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: I do. Robert, Robert- <laughs> Yeah. Um, and no. I quite like it. And I did the, the piece on uranium and did some graphics there that I thought were, yeah. were really interesting. And, uh, you know, and I think Canada. Uh, you know, I, I just as I said, you know, the Canada has a is one of the going to be one of the partners for the U.S. when it comes to uranium supplies is going to be Canada and Australia because I'm not sure we can rely on on Kazakhstan and yeah. now we know we can't rely on the Russians and in fact the Chinese and the Russians are buying for control or buying for supplies of of uranium from Kazakhstan. So you know, th- it's a very dynamic world and suddenly these supply chains that we thought were secure not so much.
0: And it is a huge opportunity with our can-do reactors, you know, and and as you say, Chris Kiefer's made some real progress on that. Canada does not have a great track record of taking full advantages of its energy opportunities. You know, we haven't seen that because that's not been the priority. And I think the the Trudeau government actually is more disposed toward nuclear than they've been in the past, but they don't like to talk about it. Why? Because they don't want to offend uh, you know, they've got the most extreme environment minister, literally, I think, in the Western world, Stephen Guillot, yeah. you know, who uh, I could tell you chapter and verse about him. He's, uh, Let's say he's committed uh, yeah. and maybe should be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Can't, yes. can't resist. Can't resist. Yeah, right. But, you know, but again, the opportunities there, you know, uh, God knows the work that you do helps present its fact-based. That's why I say I've been uh, really enjoying your work on uh, Power Hungry, really enjoying, you know, Substack, but other things you do and your books. So, uh, again, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, we got to visit again in the near future because this is terrific.
1: No, I'd love to do it, Mike. Uh, you know, I'm passionate about these issues. Yeah. I uh, I feel, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in my career, right? I've, I've been a reporter my whole life, never had a real job. Um, and I feel incredibly fortunate to be writing about these issues and finding an audience, frankly. And, and, and I work hard, let me be clear, but i I've, I, I, my life has purpose. And it, this is my yep. purpose to try and bring some sanity and clarity and, and um, facts and research, facts and research to, yeah. to, to these issues, because, the energy and power sectors are our most important industries. Every other industry depends on them. And yet there's been a very kind of a cavalier approach to them and, in how we think about them and talk about them and, my response is no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> We have to be very, very careful in how we think about them, and, and I'll, you know, you I, know, I think we're you, you want to close here, but I'll just re- end with this: we have oh. to remember that for a lot of this discussion, this is this is a quasi-religious uh, f- belief for a lot of people. And yeah. so disabusing them of some of these belief systems is going to be very hard. But I, I think it has to be seen in, in those kinds of terms that there is a re, a very the, the the overlap between a lot of the climatism and Christianity. Some of the terms, the ideas of sin and redemption, very similar. So this is not an easy fight. It's not going to be over anytime soon. Uh, and I just, you know, pack a lunch because these this, these issues are going to be around for a long time.
0: Well, my worry is that the consequences become so dire, and we've seen them in other parts of the world, as I alluded to, that uh, you know, you're forced to wake up. You know, I, I love that line in the, in the war between physics and virtue signaling, physics is undefeated. Right. And uh, yeah. that's, that's where we're at. Robert, thanks so much for a great time.
1: It's a great pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Have uh, be happy to come back anytime.